0: we're going to be doing a quick study through the book of Ephesians. So I would encourage you to be looking at Ephesians. Ephesians is an interesting interesting book for a number of reasons, and the reasons that I selected to do that as we a kind of a prelude or a run-up to the Not a Fan series. If you remember last week, I was talking about Paul and how he, on his third missionary journey, on his way home from this multi-year journey, he stopped in a little... Village or city called Miletus, and he sent message to the church up in Ephesus, which was about 30 miles north from there. Now, he had a lot of, of uh, respect uh, in that church because he had spent about almost three years there ministering. And when he left, actually, he left Timothy there to minister as kind of their pastor. And Ephesus is an amazing church because, how would you like this to be your pastors? Apostle Paul plants it. Timothy pastors it. And then John, the Apostle John, comes and takes over. Pretty good church. Or at least pretty good leaders, I would think. But in Miletus, it's interesting what he warned them. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, if you have your Bibles. It says this, now this is Paul, remember he's speaking to the church in Ephesus, and he's speaking to the leaders in particular who have came down to visit with him, and he says, be on your guard for yourselves and for all of the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you guys overseers. You're the leaders. You're to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. He's really nailing them with, you have an awesome responsibility. And then he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. He's warning this church in Ephesus that he he poured his heart into, his heart and soul for over three years. He says, and he also told him, I'm not coming back. You won't see me again. He knew. He says, be on the alert for false teachers. False doctrine, not only from people coming from the outside, but people coming from within. They're the real wolves in sheep's clothing. They're going to look good. They're going to look like part of you, but what they're going to teach isn't going to be good stuff. And then in 1 Timothy, now he's speaking to Timothy, okay? So if you jump ahead to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, now he's given some instructions to Timothy. And it's interesting how he reiterates his concern and then he adds something. In 1 Timothy, he says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia. He was in Ephesus for almost three years. He felt the Lord calling him to go on over to Macedonia, and he went to Greece and Corinth and Athens on his way home. And he says, Timothy, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct the certain men not to teach strange doctrine, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is faith. He's warning them. false teachings, goofy stuff that will get you off track and cause all this speculations. You know, the kind of like, "Well, wouldn't this be cool? What do you think? I think this. You think that? You know, who cares what you think? What does the Word of God say? This is what Paul's saying, Timothy. This is your. I'm charging you as their pastor. Keep them on track. And then he closes that verse with this last caveat, which is more than a caveat. He says, but the goal of our instruction is love. All that stuff. But the goal is love from a pure heart, sound doctrine, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He says, that's our goal. That's what we want to instruct them. We want to leave them with a good understanding, instruction, and love from pure hearts. Sincere hearts filled with faith. And then we're going to jump way ahead into the book of Revelation for just one or two verses. Because the church in Ephesus is also mentioned in the book of Revelation. And most of you know who wrote the book of Revelation, right? John, who pastored at Ephesus. And the Lord gives him this warning in the letters to these seven churches, and they aren't all good. In fact, most of them aren't. Look what he said to the church at Ephesus. And he's speaking prophetically this word from God, talking to the church at Ephesus, the church planted by Paul, pastored by Timothy. And now John is writing this in Revelation. I know your deeds, and I know your toil, and I know your perseverance. And I know that you cannot tolerate evil, these evil men. And you put to test all those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So he's commending them. The instructions that were given to Timothy and to the elders evidently took a little bit of a hold in them, and they were watchful for these false teachers. But then notice what the Lord says. And he says this, You have perseverance, and you have endured for my name's sake, and you haven't grown weary, but. Now, you'll learn to really pay attention when the Lord says, but. You know, that's like somebody coming up to you and saying, boy, you've done such a good job. You're just great. I love the way you've done everything, but. And all you hear is what comes next. And he says this, but. I have this against you. You've left your first love. Wow, what an indictment. Remembering back to his instructions to Timothy, our goal is that they understand love from a pure heart, a sincere heart, pure faith. And something had happened, and that had kind of went away. And we're going to look at the letter that Paul wrote to Ephesus, and we call it the book of Ephesians. Maybe some of you aren't even aware of the fact that it's letters. Many of these are just letters that he wrote to the churches. And the book of Ephesians is really interesting the way it's laid out. In the first three chapters, he deals with doctrine and the blessings of God for the people and a believer's position in Christ And then he shifts gears after a brief prayer and tells them because of who you are in Christ and because of the tremendous blessings you have in Christ, let me tell you how you should live. And then he prays for them to be enabled to do what he calls them to do. Now there's no way in three weeks I could teach through the book of Ephesians verse by verse. We'd be here for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. So I'm just encouraging you to read, it's only six chapters, it's all it is. And today, Lord willing, we're going to get through almost three of them. And some of you are filled with disbelief when I said that. (laughs) Amen, thank you. But we're going to give it a shot. Chapter one starts out with his greeting, and you're going to have to read a lot of these verses yourselves because I'm not going to have Elodie put them all up on the thing. The screen, I guess that's what that's called, not the thing. The screen. And I would encourage you, even though we have that screen and we reject, you know, there's something about holding the Word of God in your hands. So I'd encourage you to bring your Bibles to church so you can read them for yourselves also. We're going to look at the book of Ephesians in chapter 1. And he greets them. And he greets them like he always does. It's a wonderful greeting. He says to them, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, he starts right away with blessings. Verse 3, you can go ahead and put verse 3 up there if you haven't, but blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's, going to, he's laying the scene. He says, I am going to tell you about the blessings that you have in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. You cannot claim the blessings if you are not in Christ. You know, that's so often one of the most uncomfortable things I ask someone when I'm meeting with them is so are you really saved? Because if they can't answer yes to that with assurance, the rest of this doesn't apply to them. Shocking sometimes. That's the power of the deception of the enemy. We might think we're saved. We we might have done whatever it is we thought we had to do to get saved and then we wonder why the promises don't work. They won't. They're not for you if you're a non-believer. And he's saying these are blessings in Christ. Then he starts out and he goes on from verse 4 all the way through verse 24. And, you know, one of the things that you can sometimes get into discussion about, is the Trinity. How many of you know you can, cannot look up in the Bible where the word Trinity is found? Amen? And yet it's one of the most important doctrines we have, that we believe in the Trinity, the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You're going to see in two or three different places as we go through even today, where it is laid out so clearly these three different parts of the Godhead, and in the blessings that they present to us. In just verses 3 through 24, it's laid out for us, and we're going to make a specific point of that. The first, the blessings of the Father. It starts right away in verse 4. Now, verses 4 through 6, we could spend many weeks just trying to talk about, because there's some words in there like chosen, predestined, the select. And I'm not going to worry about us trying to decide and figure out how to take the sovereignty of god over here a god who knows all can do all he's the all powerful god and take over here the free will of man and try to figure out how they work together that's a job good luck i'm not so concerned about that today but i want to tell you this this is what i am concerned about you know how you can know you're chosen accept jesus christ as your personal lord and savior Until then, you can't know whether you were or weren't, so why debate it, right? It's a good theological discussion, and people love to go around and around that that tree, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the bottom line is this. He is saying to us, through Paul, you are the chosen people. I have chosen you. What a blessing to sit here, stand here this morning and say, I have been chosen by God. If you are saved and you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can say unequivocally, I am the chosen of God. That's who I am. Praise God. Well, what about them? Are they chosen? I don't know. I don't care. I hope they are. They'll know when they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They will know they are the chosen. First blessing from the Father is He's chosen us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says this in verse 13. You should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you. You don't know what to thank God for? Thank Him for choosing you. You remember lining up in elementary school? Oh, I hated this. And they picked two people to be the captains. Are you hating it already? And then they started choosing. And choosing. And choosing. And choosing. And there I stood, hoping someone... (laughs) would choose me. Eventually somebody had to. And it's like, thank you, God. I've been chosen. We have been the chosen of God. What a tremendous blessing we have in Christ. It says God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. We've been chosen. By God. What a blessing. And why did he choose us? In 2 Thessalonians, the end of verse 14, it says, That you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. What a blessing. Not only has he chosen us, it goes on and says, He has adopted us as his sons and daughters. Who's your daddy? (laughs) Who's your daddy? God, the Heavenly Father. That's my daddy. That's who he is. Boy, how did you get there? I don't know. He chose me. And he didn't just put me on his team. He said, you are my son. You are my daughter. Wow, does that open the door to another tremendous blessing. He accepted us. Verse 6 says he bestowed upon them. You don't bestow anything on anybody unless you accept them. So he doesn't look up there and say, I think I made a mistake with Mike. I maybe shouldn't have chosen him. And even though I did, I probably really shouldn't have brought him into the family. No, he looks at you and me, he says, I chose you, I accept you. You're my child, you're my kid, you're my son, you're my daughter. The blessings of the Father are laid out in those first 4, 5, 6, verses 4, 5, and 6 so clearly for each one of us. And then it tells us, about this acceptance, you know, most of you maybe aren't familiar with all these little stories, but there's a little tiny one-page, probably one-page book of the Bible called Philemon. It's towards the back. You don't need to turn there, but in there there's a story, and it, it involves Apostle Paul. That's why I bring it up. Paul was in prison in Rome, and this, this guy who was a slave came to Paul in Rome. And this guy's name was Onesimus. And it turns out, he was a slave of this Philemon. And Paul wrote him a letter. Because he was an escaped slave. He had a runaway slave. And Paul writes a letter back to Philemon. And that's what the book of Philemon is. This short little letter. And basically what he says is, Philemon, my beloved brother, Osimius came to me. And he's been a blessing to me. A matter of fact... He's my son. I led him to Christ. He's now a brother. You know what? And I'm going to do, I'm going to send him back to you now. And I want you, whatever debt he owed, put it on me. I'll take the debt. I want you to receive him back as you would receive me. He's our brother. He's family. All the debt. Put it on my account. Boy, for us, that's a picture of what happened for us. Jesus stands before the Father, sits before the Father, sits beside the Father at his right hand, and the enemy accuses you and me, and he's pointing his finger at us, and and Jesus just looks over and says, Dad, I took care of that. Accept them just like you would me. Any debt they owed, it's on me. I took it. And that's the kind of acceptance we have in God the Father, the blessing we have in the Father. And then in verse 7 through 12, it switches from the Father, the blessings of the Father, to the Son, the second part of the Godhead. And the blessings of the Son are, are given to us. And, it, and I'm, going to, I'm going to read, I think, verse 7, maybe 7 and 8. He says, In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of all of our sins and trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished Upon us in all wisdom and insight. And he made known to us a mystery. He lavished this upon us. I love that word. Lavished it upon us. He redeemed us. Blessing of the Son, redemption. He gave his life in our place that we would be redeemed. When he did that, he delivered you and me from the penalty of sin. What's the penalty of sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. He took the penalty of sin and paid the price. And then not only that, he broke the power of sin. An unbeliever cannot help but sin. That's who they are. That's what we did. Most of us remember. For some of us, it wasn't that long ago. We were unbelievers. And as unbelievers, we sin. Bad news is, as believers, we sin too. But the good news is, it's under the blood and we can repent and receive forgiveness and stand before the Father. He gave us redemption. He has forgiven us. The word forgive simply means this, send away. God, will you send away my sins because of Jesus? well, Jesus bore our sins? You know, when we look at the the different scriptures in 1 Peter 2, it says this, and he himself, Jesus, bore our sins. In his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. He took and bore our sins. And in Leviticus chapter, I think it's 19 or 20, 16. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16, there's a cool picture in the old temple worship thing. For those of you who know, the priest Aaron, Moses', Moses <clears throat> brother Aaron, is the high priest And part of their ceremony was they they had to make all these sacrifices to get into the temple, to go into the Holy of Holies, etc. And they had two goats. And they took these two goats. And after they went through a bunch of of ceremonial things, he took one of the goats and he killed it. Collected its blood. And because of the ceremony that he would already went through, he then took the blood into the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God was in the ark. And he took some of that blood and he sprinkled it on the ark for the sins of the people. And then he went back out and he laid his hands on the other goat. And picture that. He took that goat and he put his hands on like the horns of the goat. And the goat was called the scapegoat. And when he put his hands on the goat, that was a picture of all of the sins of the nation of Israel being placed on that goat. And then it says a man whose job was to take that goat. It didn't didn't die in the temple. It took that goat and it says it walked him out into the wilderness to a distant land and left him there. It bore the sins away. Again, for us, a picture of Christ. When they nailed him to that cross, he bore his sin. The weight of the sin of the world of mankind, past, present, and future, was on him. Talk about pain and suffering. Suffering. All that he had suffered in his physical body, his emotional mind, and now his spirit, the sins of the world on his shoulders. But he bore them away for us. The blessing of our forgiveness. And then it goes on in those few verses, 8 through 10, and it says another blessing is this. He has revealed the will of the Father to us. Wouldn't it be cool to know what God thinks? Well, he's revealed it to us through Jesus. You want to know what God thinks? Read your word. Read the Bible. It's in there. It's revealed through Christ. And what he's really saying, a lot of stuff used to be hidden. A lot of the mysteries that we read about in the Bible, especially this huge mystery called salvation, had not been revealed. And yet it says, Jesus, the mystery, the Christ is the head of all things. The mystery for his purposes. In Colossians 1, it says this, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but been now manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is in Christ, in you, the hope of glory. Which is Christ, in you, the hope of glory. And in Revelations chapter 5, and then I'll back up a sec, but in Revelations chapter 5 it says, And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, To take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. This mystery is talked a lot about in this first chapter of Ephesians. The mystery that was hidden. If you remember in the Bible, if you understand in the Bible, there was one chosen people in the Old Testament, wasn't there? Who were they? The Jewish people, they were God's people. Man, did it stink to be a Gentile. You weren't one. And the only way you could possibly become one is to become a, a proselyte Jew, to become a Jew, to become Jewish, go through all of their stuff and become a Jew. But you were separated from God. As a Gentile, you were just plain out of luck. Even though the little kids are gone, i got to go that way. Other words come to mind. But you were out of luck. And there was a way, there was a plan in place from the foundations of the world to get you in to the family of God. But it was a mystery. They didn't understand it. Man, to be a Gentile and try to figure out how, you know, this God thing, it sounds kind of appealing, but to be this religious Jewish thing, that doesn't sound appealing at all. I wonder how I can get to God. There's a mystery. And what it's saying here is one of the blessings of the Son is this mystery that Christ came and died on a cross for all mankind to bring together the Jews and the Gentiles into the church, the body of Christ. He had a plan of salvation before time, before we can even imagine, before the foundations of the earth were in place. He had a plan. For each one of us. And he gives us an inheritance. It goes on and talks about our inheritance. You know what? A lot of us are familiar with the scripture which in part says we are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We go right past that and just don't meditate on that once. What the heck does that mean? I'm a joint heir with Jesus Christ. That means Jesus, God's son, part of the Godhead, the heir of all that the Father has, I am now a joint heir. It's my inheritance too. I can live with him forever in eternity. It's my inheritance. It's a done deal. I didn't deserve it. It wasn't my idea. I wouldn't have understood it if someone had told me about it. Probably. But now that's who I am. We have this inheritance. So the blessings of the Son, just in this small section of Scripture, he's redeemed us. He's forgiven us. He's revealed God's will to us. And he's given this inheritance to us. And then in verse 13, it switches to the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity. It's almost in neon lights, except it doesn't spell out Trinity. It shows us the Trinity, the Godhead. And in verse 13, and this is another one of those verses that we could Talk about what does it really mean and all that stuff. I'm going to just tell you what I want it to mean because this is what I think it means. And I tell you that out front so you don't need to agree with me if you don't want to. But boy, if you believe it the way I do, is it a blessing of the Holy Spirit. It says this in verse 13. In him, in Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth of the gospel of your salvation, having also believed it, you were sealed... By the Holy Spirit of promise. A blessing of the Holy Spirit is the sealing of this promise in a person who has heard the truth, truly believed it, not just agreed with it, believed it to the point of, I'm going to live it. I'm going to lay down my life for Jesus because of what he has done for me. I have truly believed it. Not just mental assented it, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to put it to work in my life. And he says... The blessing the Holy Spirit seals it. And when something is sealed, no one can break the seal. I believe no one can break the seal. I believe if you're truly, truly saved, you're in. And no one can get you out, including yourself, if you're truly, truly in. Now, some of you know that there's a theology that's different than that. They think you can lose your salvation. Go ahead and be wrong. (laughs) No, just kidding. (laughs) That sarcasm thing shows up at the worst times. But I believe it's one of the most amazing blessings we have from the Holy Spirit that we are sealed. The word "seal" simply means to make sure. To make sure. The Holy Spirit makes sure. Can you imagine just in the natural what it would be like, the fear, torment even, if you adopted a child and brought him into the family and put him in the will? And then because they misbehaved, you said, wait a second, wait a second, we're going back to court. I'm going to disown you. You're no longer in my will. Matter of fact, we're sending you back wherever you came from because you're no longer my child and I don't want you anymore. Or if that was the threat being held over your head at all times, what peace would there be in that? I don't believe that's a heavenly father. And then it goes on and says that the Holy Spirit, another blessing of the Holy Spirit, is he is our pledge, or some translations say he, our, the earnest or the down payment. If you've ever bought something, you have to put down earnest money. That's a guarantee that I'm going to buy that thing. It says this, the Holy Spirit is our pledge. It's to us an assurance. A man as awesome as the Holy Spirit is in the life of a believer, there's more. There's more. It's an assurance that all the promises of God are for us. All the promises of eternal life in heaven. All the promises are for us. Here, here's a deposit. Can you imagine what the rest of the inheritance must look like if the Holy Spirit is the earnest money? It must be beyond our imagination. And it is beyond our imagination. And one little thing, if you're taking notes, we aren't going to go back and look at each of these verses, but it's interesting. In verse 6, verse 12, and verse 14, after all of these wonderful things are mentioned, there's this line. To the praise of His glory. Why does God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit bless us in all these ways to the praise of His glory? You have been called. You have been chosen. You have been sealed for the praise of God's glory. Man, can you imagine what it must sound like in the Father's ears when you start putting yourself down? When you start believing lies that somehow you're not worthy? You're a failure. You're not good enough. You've been too bad. You've been too evil. He's saying, uh uh. My son died for you. I've adopted you to the praise of my glory. I've blessed you to the praise of my glory, and I've sealed you to the praise of my glory. Church, let's just believe him. It's to his glory. Don't listen to those lying thoughts, those lying voices, stupid things other people say. We are to the praise of God's glory. He knows what you've done. If you've repented, he doesn't care. It's gone. Don't believe what the world says about you. Don't believe what your imagination says about you. Don't believe what the enemy plants in your brain about you. There are lies from the pit of hell when you have been saved, repented, and forgiven. It's done. It's done. You are to the praise of his glory. Every single one of us that are no Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, that is a pretty cool thing to be. I, with all my faults and garbage, am to the praise of His glory. Matter of fact, if I think about it long enough, I actually want to live so that I can be to the praise of His glory. So everybody around me would know that I am to the praise of His glory. That's something called a follower of Christ. And Paul finishes this section of blessings with a prayer. And there's two prayers in in the book of Ephesians, and they're great prayers. This one oftentimes gets overlooked because it's not, dear God. He kind of starts in by saying, and I believe it's in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And it's interesting what the two prayers are. There's this one prayer over here first. First, he tells you all the blessings. All the promises and who you are in Christ. A child of God created in his image, seated in heavenly places. To the praise of his glory. And then he prays this first prayer. And you know what he's basically saying? This is the Nelson paraphrase. God help them get it. That's what he's saying. It's a prayer that we would understand. He's saying to the church at Ephesus. And it's for us too, even though we don't live in Ephesus. He's saying, Lord, God, I pray that they get it. You ever pray that? Usually it goes like this, Lord, I pray you'd help me get it so I can understand. Look at his prayer, and I'm going to go ahead and read a few verses here. Verse 18 is where I'm starting. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to his, of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of inheritance in the saints, and what is the suppressing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. Above all rule, all power, all principalities, above it all. And he's saying, this is what I want. I want you to understand it. To know what Christ has done for them. To know what he's done for us. To be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation from God by the Holy Spirit that we might understand all this that you might know the hope of his calling. Man, there is a world out there without hope. Some of us in here feel that way on a regular basis. And Paul's praying, Lord, that they might know the hope of the calling. There is hope. No matter what situation we're in, there is always hope. That should separate us as Christians from the world. We have hope of the calling that we have in Christ because we're his kids. That we might know he's, you know... Man, if somebody told you what you were going to inherit, most of us would write it down and remember it forever. Wouldn't we? You're going to inherit this. You know, six weeks later you go, gee, I wonder, what was it again? I was going to get a farm and I was going to get $1, $100,000. So that's what it was. Or was it a million? We'd remember. Paul's got to pray that they remember the inheritance that's in Christ. And then know the greatness of his power. And he elaborates and says the resurrection power, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that they would know that power. Why is it so important that we know that power? Because that power resides in us. I can't do it. Baloney, you can't do it. I can't overcome that sin. Yes, you can. I can never live like a Christian. I can never share my testimony. I can never, I can never. Yes, we can because we have the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living in us. And Paul's praying, oh, Lord, I wish they'd get all this. Help them to get this. So he's praying for them to be enlightened that they would wake up. And boy, did time go fast. I mean, not in Ephesus, today. <laughs> and we're only through chapter one. Who said amen when I, I said you? <laughs> Mary? Chapter two. No, we're going to stop right there. But I encourage you to read it. I am just skimming the surface. Chapter two is amazing. Amazing. Because chapter two elaborates on this: our position in Christ. Church. there's one thing. some of you that have went through steps to freedom with me get so sick of hearing this. But for me, I'm pretty simple-minded. And when I say, you know, we need to grab onto certain truths to help us overcome those issues and strongholds in our life that keep holding us back. For me, it was just this, this simple. And don't think I've got it nailed. I wrestle with this all the time. My position in Christ, my identity in Christ. He spent chapter one saying, You're my children. You're my children. You're my child. I am a child of God. No matter what you think of me, that's who I am. And I'm all right with whatever you think of me. Because that's who I am. Chapter 2, he says, oh man, your identity is awesome. Here's your position. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. At the right hand of the Father. That position of authority and power. That's who we are. So in chapter 2, he's going to go on and describe who you were what God did, and who we are. Wouldn't you love to know those things? Let's pray. God, I pray this week you would bring these things to our remembrance. You would draw us to your word, that we would look into the word. We have the Holy Spirit. You're called the teacher. Teach us, Holy Spirit. Reveal truth to us in the word. God, I know some people in here, God, and sometimes me, we think it's dry bones to read the word. Or we use the excuse we don't understand. You're the teacher. Bring it to life. Teach us. Draw us. Captivate us with your word. Let it have your desired effect in each one of our lives. God, and we say these things and ask these things so that it may be to the praise of your glory. And God, now I pray as we go our different directions today and the rest of this, this holiday weekend, You watch over us, protect us. Lord, I pray for the many people who aren't here with us this morning, wherever they're at, that you would be with them, watching over them. Refresh them, bless their times with family and friends. God, and we look forward, we look forward to all that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.